So why don't we start off, uh, each of you introduce yourselves. Danielle, I'll start with you. Okay, I'm Danielle Nondorf. I was the undergraduate component of the Russ Brinsfield Summer Internship in the summer of 2018. I went to the University of Maryland, where I graduated with a BS in Animal Sciences and a BA in Economics. Allison? I'm Allison Venable. I was the law student, um, other half of the Russ Brinsfield Internship last summer. I am currently a rising third-year law student at the University of Maryland. I am studying environmental and crisis management law. So when you two started, did you know what you were getting yourself into, I guess is the question. (laughs) Yes and no. Um, I think they had a lot of prep for... uh, what the facility was going to be like, that it would be different than your average, like, business setup or, like, organization setup, that it was much more open. There was a lot more rural aspect to it than being in Baltimore City, where I was. Right. Um, and for the work, I think they did a lot to say it was not going to be traditional legal work. It was going to be a lot of working directly with people in the agriculture industry and environmental industry and a lot of working with science and numbers more so than other law students. So I think they did a good job of preparing on that side, but there were still some things that I wasn't as prepared for. Like topics of Mm -hmm. what, for instance? Well, for one, we did a lot of, uh, policy kind of writing on things such as saltwater intrusion, which I had never heard of before coming here. So a lot of the topics, while I knew kind of that they would have an environmental and agro component, uh, were still things that I had never learned about or heard of in my other studies. Mm -hmm. And I studied science and I still hadn't heard of a lot of that. I did animal sciences. So the projects were totally new for me too. Um, I had a weird way of coming into it where I wanted to go to law school afterwards. So the projects were kind of what I wanted them to be, like a combination of the stuff I studied and then also what I might go on to do. So I was really excited to start the projects. But same thing as Allison, it was hard sometimes to dive right in with new topics. But you did. You both did fabulously. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess uh, if we dive into some of the topics, what was uh, one of the major ones for you? I think the the biggest one probably was the whip, mm-hmm. uh, the biggest one that I've also, because I stayed past the summer, and I've also had to deal with that again, and we did a lot with the whip. We came up and drafted a Bay Cabinet memo, or help draft, it was a team effort, uh, to make recommendations to the governor's cabinet about how they can improve the whip process. Mm-hmm. For And for those of you who don't know, whip stands for Watershed Implementation Plan. It's Maryland's plan to reduce nutrient pollution to the Chesapeake Bay. so Yeah, I think that was probably the most uh, time-consuming and also brain-consuming. Uh, it was we our first big one, too. Yeah. So. And it kind of went throughout over half of our summer here yeah. was working on these projects because we got to attend each meeting where they kind of discussed how the region of Maryland would be implementing their WIP program Mm -hmm. and how it had been going and what changes they were going to make and then get public comments that Danielle and I could then kind of summarize, create what we thought were, you know, important aspects from it and then uh, draft the memo that Danielle mentioned where we kind of said, these Mm -hmm. are 
what people are concerned with and our recommendations. So And the the topics span wildly too. Yeah. Right. Because you not dealing not just dealing with ag issues, but there's things that there's acronyms that like I've <laughs> had never heard of before. You know. Yeah. And, so, mm-hmm. and then there they're they're common ones too, but then you're just like you don't really like MS4. You you hear that constantly, yeah. and you have to like look it up three or four times before you're like, oh yeah, that's right. It's like, it's that. But yeah, it's <laughs> stormwater. But um, you know, and then it's also dealing with wastewater issues, and then it breaks down by county. Then each county is dealing, or each region is dealing with something different, mm-hmm. and you have to learn all this stuff as you go. Yeah, that was definitely difficult. Um, we really were just thrown right into it. But it was fun. It was kind of like before we did the workshops, there were five in June of 2018. It was always like, are you guys ready for the whip? Like the whip is coming out. Right. We had no idea what this even was. It's like so, this ominous cloud. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the first one we went to was in central Maryland and it was sort of fancy and there were these state agencies there and there was a lot of pomp and circumstance. And it was just from my perspective, at least really interesting to just see how they all operate together and dive right in. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because they've been doing it for years. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, you're right. They knew it was coming mm-hmm. <laughs> here and finally here. Um, so what else? You know, we, we did the whip. Uh, you know, you, you had mentioned saltwater intrusion earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, Danielle, have continued mm-hmm. that work. By, and so Danielle, uh, we basically won't let her leave. She has <laughs> to leave for law school. You're attending Berkeley mm-hmm. soon, which is fantastic. Congratulations. But uh, meanwhile, we keep extending her contract because we need her <laughs> as long as possible. <laughs> it really worked out for me. I mean, I had a gap year, so I've been so happy to be here. That's true. Um, so, so tell me, tell me about uh, I guess big picture saltwater intrusion, what it is, and the specific work you were, you two were doing, involving it. So saltwater intrusion essentially is the encroachment of saltwater from the bay and the ocean because where we are on the eastern shore we have complete salt water on the atlantic ocean side of course and then the brackish water on the chesapeake bay side so several counties on the eastern shore were uh i guess victims of this encroachment of salt into their aquifers below and on the surface level and what we did was look into we started by looking into the different data that we could find on where, how, and why this was happening, um, which was a very different thing for a law student to do. Mm, right. <laughs> um, but it was really interesting to kind of look at this from the scientific data perspective, and Danielle had to help me a lot with understanding how these charts worked, and a very <laughs> good part of having a science undergrad. <laughs> um, but we got to essentially make our summarization of how expansive the problem of saltwater intrusion was, mm-hmm. whether um, any counties were already had ways that they were dealing with it, and kind of some small recommendations that we could find through maybe other states or other places that had already breached this issue. And this really, this work came out of House Bill 1350, sea level rise, inundation, and coastal flooding. And in that bill, they say there needs to be a work group that will develop a plan to address um, saltwater intrusion on in Maryland. And so that's why we started doing that. And this work group was a bunch of different state agencies. And a lot of it was technical. 
uh, we weren't able to understand mm-hmm. exactly. So our job was really just finding preliminary information, setting the stage. Because when this group convened for the first time to make this plan, there were questions like, what even is saltwater intrusion? Right. So Allison and I really worked to inform them. They obviously have technical knowledge beyond what we have, but to even just begin these conversations. And then my work with that continued now that they actually have a draft plan and has to be finished by December 15th of 2019. Oh, it is this oh, wow. year. Yes. Then I asked that. It's coming yesterday. up. Yeah. So, <laughs> wow. Yeah, rapidly approaching. And they do have draft chapters at this point that they're going to have out for review soon. And my work with that was continuing what Allison and I did with doing a proper literature review, finding what other places have been able to do to, do, to adapt and mitigate. Yeah, well, that's got to be cool to get in on the ground floor of some issue in a state. You know, if, there, yeah. if other states are dealing with it, you know, and Maryland might not be as far along, but it's cool to be part of that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And really the credit to that is Dr. Suzanne Dorsey, our previous executive director. She was involved with this bill from the beginning with Delegate Stein pushing it through. So she was able mm-hmm. to involve us from the very beginning. Right. Yeah. Um, so uh, you had said that there's like a draft report coming out on that soon. Mm-hmm. So what does House Bill... 1350, what's that require? It just requires for Maryland to create a plan. There's no specifics about the plan has to have... There, it's, is that why you're doing all this work? Yeah, mm-hmm. and so the plan really is to say that we're recognizing this as an issue in Maryland and what we can, we're can we planning to do in the future, but it's almost uh, a plan to have future plans, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's a beginning step for sure. Yeah, that's good. I mean, uh, that's good. Maryland's good at doing, uh, coming up with many different plans for things. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Our forte. That, yeah, but yeah, that, those, those are important. You, know, you can't act without appropriate planning. So, mm-hmm. you know, touche. Um, and because it was just beginning, this is the first time the state's really addressing this issue, they didn't want to go in, at least that was my understanding from the worker, they didn't want to go in with expectations of what they were Right. They did, you know, they wanted to go with it as it came and just research and talk and discuss. And they're really proud of what they've produced thus far. And I am proud of them, too. Absolutely. So yeah. I'm excited for it. Great. Um, so and then so this has become a pretty big issue statewide, but mainly in coastal areas. Right. Mm-hmm. Like the eastern shore, lower mm-hmm. eastern shore. North Carolina is dealing with it. There's some trouble in Massachusetts, a, a lot of areas. California, different ways, but also dealing with it. It's mm. going to be an issue, especially with climate change and things, that's just going to continue cropping up in different areas. So what have you found for mitigation strategies for this? Well, some of it, especially here on the Eastern Shore with agricultural crops, switching your crops to using something that's more salt tolerant. So it's basically, it's almost nothing you can do to stop it, so you have to adapt? That's, well, there are some policy choices, like adjusting your pumping rates from different wells, and because... Um, I don't know if you want to talk about that more. We did look at into how much each region of the Eastern Shore was pumping from their respective aquifers and mm-hmm. kind of we looked at it by industry and by like location. And one of the policy suggest policies that had been suggested was how decreasing the amount that each maybe industry or location was pumping would lessen the increase of which the salt water is pooled into that aquifer. Mm. Cause essentially mm-hmm. when you pull water out it at like a very expansive rate, then it's 
forming like a suction almost underneath of the aquifer in that area that pulls in from the side and from below the existing salt water oh. that's kind of already pushing on the edges of the aquifer. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So it can kind of speed that rate up. So one thing that had been suggested but would probably be, be difficult to implement was certain industries, maybe like agriculture or I know um, like the golf course industry mm-hmm. and things like that, mm-hmm. that do pump a lot um, from different areas of aquifers of changing the location of the aquifer, of the pumps where they're pooling from or mm. decreasing the rates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's other ways that you can address it with like physical barriers and, and things, but it's all really expensive. A lot of the alternatives are. There's also reverse osmosis or desalination, and Ocean City looked into that. But yeah, that's, that. yeah. And then um, some areas are looking at freshwater injection where they are literally pumping back in fresh mm. water. But all of that's expensive, and I don't think that we're even at the stage right now where we could quantify even what the real cost of that would be. Sure. But there are mm-hmm. options to explore, for sure. sure. It's an interesting issue because it's been ongoing, and people have spoken towards the issue for years, but it's still kind of novel in feeling that they need to be addressing the issue. Right. Mm-hmm. So there, the solutions are usually from places that either have a lot more money and have a lot more, like, stronger infrastructure. California. Like, California. They have a lot of the, like, reverse osmosis thing and uh, desalination plants. They We saw those not really anywhere on the eastern shore because there's just not enough space for them. There's not enough money in a lot of the areas where they would be needed. And it's just not seen as crucial enough mm-hmm. at this point hmm. to justify spending that much money on some of these It was interesting for sure to see reports from the 1970s where they were quantifying how much salt Mm -hmm. was in wells and things like that, but to now in 2019 be finally developing a first step plan. So it's something that's a little overdue and I'm happy that it's being addressed. Wow. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess circling back, did you know you would become experts on saltwater intrusion? (laughs) Oh, I don't think we're experts (laughs) even a little bit. (laughs) No, I didn't anticipate this. No. That was one of, I think, the most nerve-wracking things we did in our uh, summer was that presentation to this committee of the work group. That was born out of the House bill. Yes. So there were several uh, representatives from different uh, state and county agencies that were had been selected or volunteered to be part of this initial work group to just study the issue. And at their first meeting was when Danielle and I presented all of this mm-hmm. preliminary research that we had done. And we were so nervous. Yeah, we I were. sat in on that meeting, though, <laughs> and they appreciated it, and they thought you guys did a fantastic job. So it was definitely weird to kind of... We had been spending a month, a month and a half, researching different saltwater intrusion solutions data and mm-hmm. anything we could find and then to be presenting it to people who we thought were going to be experts because they'd spent their whole lives studying right. things related to yeah for sure this so so and all that's going on while we're doing other projects like the web <laughs> and what else so um we talked about web we talked about saltwater intrusion what, what mm-hmm. were some other ones uh was another one that stood out for you um one thing we did was a forestry project with mm-hmm. agnes and we that was a cool one because we got to take a field trip. Oh, have you heard that the mill closed? I did. I saw we that. We went to visit Luke Mill out in Western Maryland. Oh, you visited? Yes, mm-hmm. we did. Wow. So we were asked to essentially make a kind of like 
manual slash how-to guide policy recommendation for farmers who own land that has significant wooded areas because often this land is just kind of set aside or it's not being used and the farmers don't realize that they couldn't make a profit off of this unused land Mm -hmm. either by letting recreational hunting or harvesting the timber Hmm. or using any of the other natural resources that can come out of a heavily wooded areas Mm -hmm. and people don't know exactly how to start that process Hmm. so what we made was kind of like a little manual like a field guide for how to best utilize this you know existing resource on your property and to do that we had to learn a lot about timber and timber laws in Hmm. maryland and the process for hiring a forester to assess your property and then a logger to actually harvest the woods and knowing kind of which laws apply to which types of farms and farmland and Hmm. those kinds of things. And we got to go see a logging operation in Garrett County in uh, the Luke Sawmill, which was responsible for making some of it was paper mill. They, yeah, it was yeah, a they, paper, they mill. A paper mill. Made like McCormick labels. Yeah, and that's what it was. Like that. oh. So like all those little spices. Yeah. Huh. Mm-hmm. Um, and we got to see basically how that whole process runs from. That was our I think our most the, interesting. Uh, I think field so. trip. Yeah, it was like a whole day. I really wanted to see a bear, but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> we got to see a lot of how they like mark the trees, how they decide mm-hmm. which trees to take, and then how they leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, op- like a forest operation once they finished and then we got a whole tour of the factory mm-hmm. we got to see everything from where they bring the trees in when they're first cut to what they do with taking all the chipped wood to turn it into paper hmm. and it's it was a really timely field trip now especially when you consider how the forestry industry is being impacted in maryland right now it's mm-hmm. a huge industry that's taking hard hits and so it's, it's great to work on a document that could help increase the prevalence of people actually utilizing their forests. One of the things that we learned that really touched me was thinking about forests as really just another crop. Like you mm-hmm. plant these trees, they grow, and you harvest them. It might be over 10 years, 15 years, but how is it really so different from corn or soybean, something that we grow mm-hmm. abundantly here on the eastern shore? So right. that was an interesting perspective change for me out of this trip and out of mm-hmm. doing this document. Because it's just a long game. It right? is, the end game. Yeah. Over the summer. Mm-hmm. Uh. Yeah. So, and if, if those, and a lot of times if those forests aren't managed, then they become unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And yeah. I think that's a kind of a really common misconception with um, timber operations. Trees, yeah. yeah. A lot of people don't want to allow timber uh, harvesting on their property because they say, oh, I've planted these trees for environmental purposes. Right. I don't want them cut down because that defeats the purpose. But really, if you have a harvester especially, you know, a well-qualified licensed master logger, master mm-hmm. logger that can come out and assess your property, then they can say these trees are actually hurting your forest because they may be sick or they may not be at the right area or they may be blocking other trees or mm-hmm. other resources from growing. So is that a document that's been finalized, right? No, or, it has not been finalized. Is, is she doing that through... As part of our the study we funded with her, Agnes. No, I think this was Sarah. This was Sarah Everhart, um, and it's being published. It's going to be published eventually through ALEI, oh, okay. Agricultural Law Education Initiative. Ah. 
So mm-hmm. we we were just fortunate to have Agnes. One of the great things, and we'll talk more about, I'm sure, the great things of this internship is being housed with so many amazing experts in so many different fields. And so we were just had proximity to Agnes. and Right, because she's mm-hmm. here at the Y. For those of you who don't know, uh, the Hughes Center is housed at the Y Research and Education Center in Queenstown. It's along the Y River, and it's pretty much literally in the boonies. <laughs> it's beautiful, though. Yeah, it's great. Uh, yeah, but... Um, it's definitely definitely a rural area, rural character. And mm-hmm. at the Y, uh, it's sort of a hodgepodge of different University of Maryland-related organizations. Uh, there's extension here um, and forestry. <clears throat> excuse me, forestry uh, folks in extension are part of that. Lead Maryland, and then there's a whole bunch of uh, research researchers uh, who work out of this office. So, um, yeah, I guess if if we're talking about benefits of uh, your internship. You know, what uh, what stood out for both of you? I would say, and not to just be corny, that one of my favorite things <laughs> is meeting Allison. I like developed a friend, and I really care about everybody who works here. And it's just one of the nicest environments to work in. So completely aside from the work, I think you could be doing work you're passionate about, but if it's with people who you don't really care for, then right. it can be difficult. And everybody here is just lovely. So that was a real benefit, a pleasant experience all around. Mm-hmm. I think to kind of echo that statement, when you're a law student, there's a lot of competition and a lot of people who want to help you but also don't care if they kind of step on you a mm. little bit. And Doggy dog world. Yeah, a little bit. Wow. And I never wanted to kind of be in that kind of like rat race scenario where you're just kind of fighting to, you know, get the biggest compliment from your boss or just kind of begging for even like five minutes to talk to Hmm. one of your superiors, which is what a lot of kind of think law students do their first summer out of school. So this was an extremely unique opportunity for me to not only get basically unlimited access to all of my supervisors because everyone was so open to just sit down and talk whenever Mm -hmm. we had any question or just wanted to chat about life. Mm -hmm. Um, But we also got to really take lead on some of these projects and got to work with so many experts in different topic areas that we could say, hey, we really want to learn more about forestry. And Agnes was like, well, I'm going out to Garrett County. Just come with me. Mm -hmm. Or we were working on something just tangentially related to oysters. And Don would be like, let's go here's visit. Ten books about yeah, here's yeah, 10 yeah, books yeah. about oysters. <laughs> Don, Don and Don the Webster, entire history. By the way. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so you guys, yeah, that was, I was going to say. How did we not talk about oyster aquaculture? How did we? That's what I was going to get into. Because that's not typically uh, traditionally part of what the Hughes Center does, but we thought it was important mm-hmm. in, uh, for, for their... Um, nutrient reduction purposes, essentially. Correct? or Correct. Well, oh, the yeah. specific issue we worked with was about oyster aquaculture theft. Right. Right. So there's... Um, I can't believe we didn't bring this up before. There, there were oyster wars. This was a big deal where people were <laughs> fighting over territories and the rights to being able to grow oysters, sort of as if you would grow a crop. Um, and so we dealt with... These people are growing oysters and other people are coming in and stealing them. And how do you handle that? What do you do to address that? And so Allison and I were able to work with Don Webster and a couple other agencies. Do you remember the name of the work group we worked with? Theft Prevention Work Group. Aquaculture Theft Prevention Mm -hmm. Work Group. Very fitting. And Mm -hmm. so we looked through laws that other states had 
to address this issue essentially. Mm-hmm. So again, preliminary research, we did a lot of that and yeah, yeah we was proud of that work. Actually, it was very similar to the kind of our saltwater intrusion project mm-hmm. where we mm-hmm. did a lot of background information collection and summarization both on I think we looked at different technologies that states or counties and other mm-hmm. parts of the country were using to combat theft in their either in somewhere in sanctuaries because we were yeah. looking at adopting some of those practices for aquaculture operations mm-hmm. and then also the different like the current laws and how they could maybe be adapted to make maybe more stringent punishments to kind of deter theft uh, mm-hmm. and then we presented our findings at the theft prevention work group meetings at Department of Natural Resources in Annapolis, which oh. was another really interesting meeting we got it to It was, attend. yeah. And we found some really cool stuff, like making a decoy oyster that has like a tracker in it. So if someone huh. takes your <laughs> oysters, you can find That's out where smart. they are. It is, right. yeah. Like I'm bank sure robbers when they yeah. rob banks. <laughs> yeah. So there were some deep things, yeah. So, so were there were just, uh, were those a, was there like a suite of options available as a result of your findings? I don't know if they ended up actually implementing anything. They have your recommendations, though. They do, mm-hmm. right. And so we recommended things like stricter penalties, which will only do a certain mm-hmm. amount, realistically. And we recommended having a, a set court date time frame for cases related to aquaculture theft because not all judges or lawyers are well-versed in theft of aquaculture and what that really means Mm -hmm. um some people might be like okay well it's like you know just a couple bushels of oysters like who cares but to a waterman that's like you know thousands of dollars Mm -hmm. and so it's kind of one of our recommendations is to kind of get that knowledge out there make the people who are deciding the fate of these thieves and poachers Mm -hmm. uh what more aware of what it really meant Mm. It's such an interesting topic because obviously you never defend theft, but on the other side of this, you have people who are poor and struggling, and that's a lot of the case. Mm-hmm. So really, they're judgment-proof. You take them to court, and what are you going to get from them? They don't have much to give. That's right. why they're stealing these in the first place. Oh. So it brings up interesting discussions about mm-hmm. just how you should proceed forward with those issues. Is there a particular region that where this is happening more than a, a part, of the, part of the Bay? That's an interesting question. I don't know the answer to that. I think the only thing I could say towards the region is regions that are have very large and active sanctuaries already for oh. oyster growth where you're not allowed into that area. Right. I think mm-hmm. we saw, mm. um, and I can't say for certain because we didn't really study okay. this, but from my general perception, it seemed that those areas were being hit a little bit harder because the waterways that the watermen traditionally had access to were already restricted. Mm-hmm. So when they were further restricted by, on one hand, they have this sanctuaries, and on this other hand, they have all these leased water bottoms for aquaculture farmers, then that's kind of uh, making their livelihood a little bit harder. So they those had a higher area of theft, I think. And people are doing all sorts of things, having um, motion detectors and bright lights that turn on if somebody's in there. In the, in the water above their land. And, huh. mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's steps to be taken. It's just going to be an uphill battle to try to figure out how to attack this issue, especially how Allison mentioned lawyers and judges and things who aren't right. particularly familiar with oyster aquaculture theft. Mm-hmm. Right. Huh. Um, is there any other projects 
you want to highlight? We should talk about agricultural conservation leasing. I was going to say. Uh, yeah. We didn't get to work on that uh, in the same depth that the 2017 interns did. So give credit to Hannah Catt and Melissa Steffen. Mm-hmm. Uh, they created a guide, an agricultural conservation leasing guide. 43%, according to the USD, USDA 2017 Ag Census, uh, agricultural land is leased. So there's a tenant uh, farmer with a landowner. And on those lands, there's a decrease in conservation practices that are being implemented. So one of the neat things about all the work we do is it all ties in. So we could really mm-hmm. talk about the whip here. Yeah. And like how we need to reduce nutrients going to the Chesapeake Bay. And this is a big group of people to target. So there was a guy that was developed a troubleshoot that in multiple ways and since that guide came out Allison and I were able to just do like the marketing and outreach aspect of it right we had a really hard time getting a hold of absentee landowners imagine that they were absentee (laughs) (laughs) that's one of the biggest issues uh like I I struggle with that uh as in communications work just trying to reach landowners Mm -hmm. when to uh, notify them of like of the forestry listening sessions we're hosting Right. Because they're a big part of that, too. But anyway, back to the ag leasing guide. I know that the Department of Agriculture, like you said, has been going around saying that that's a big part of their plan for the next phase of the WIP. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of credit to Sarah Everhart at ALEI for pushing this project through. She's been absolutely amazing with it. And actually today her and Nancy Nunn are presenting about it. Right, at the Environmental Trust Conference. Right. So this has gone from just being something that Sarah was talking about making a guide for to now being a statewide discussion, really. Mm -hmm. And it's getting recognition. She's getting a lot of... uh, Sarah's getting a lot of recognition for it, and so she should because she spent a lot of time working on it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what's the result of... uh, What's in the guide? Oh, gosh. There's a lot in the guide. You should download it at umaglaw.org. <laughs> it's available for download. It's amazing. <laughs> but it's essentially uh, gives guidelines for landowners who want to implement conservation practices on their leased land. And so some of the issues that Sarah brings up in this guide and the interns who helped develop it was that there's a lack of communication between landowners and farmers. There's leasing uncertainty, so there's some disincentives. If you're a tenant farmer, you're not sure if you're going to be on that land next year. So why would you implement conservation practices that might take 15 years to show improvements in soil health or other abstract, really, ideas Mm. about improvement in the land that you won't benefit from? And -hmm. also there's a lack of knowledge about the conservation practices, and especially cost-share funding. Another issue is maintenance. So this Mm. guide addresses all of that, and it's amazing because it also provides sample lease language which is so important. So it really is it's supposed to, the starting point of it is you already have a lease. It's so important to have a lease if you're in an arrangement like this. And the guide really serves as an extra. Like you have a lease, but here's how to improve it mm. to also be a good mm-hmm. steward on the land. Sometimes they don't have leases. They, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially <laughs> if it's deals. been kind of like a generational thing right. where mm-hmm. which a lot of farms are, you know, I'm just renting it to my nephew, so I'm not going to write up mm. a formal lease or something. Right. And then you get caught with having these projects that one side, either the landowner or the tenant farmer, wants to implement and then not having a clear-cut way of how to do it. Uh, All right, and this is becoming a bigger issue with generations switching over and new people owning the Mm -hmm. land and how important it is to have a lease just to make sure everybody's on the same page about what's going to be happening on the farm. Right. So we were lucky to be a part of this project, and Sarah hosted, uh, was it five or six workshops in December uh, and January. I can't remember the exact number about mm-hmm. there. So, yeah. yeah. And they were amazing and had high attendance. Mm-hmm. So 
And that's going to be a project our interns work on this summer again. Yeah, Follow-up so, yeah. surveys. <laughs> right. Trying to lead, reach those landowners again. Mm-hmm. So this project was funded by SARE, Sustainable Agricultural Research and Education Program. Mm-hmm. And part of that is they have a goal to get, I think it's 10 conservation practices implemented on, on leased land. So we'll, the interns in the summer will have to follow up with those people and really shake their finger at them and ask if they, <laughs> they push their farmer or landowner to consider conservation practices. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, uh, so get outside of these projects, uh, I remember when you both were giving a presentation to the entire why that you sort of had a retrospective moment of, uh, of, were there any, did you have to overcome any presumptions, uh, about either agriculture, the environment, while you were in that internship, after you learned so much about <laughs> what was going on? I think yes. Um, maybe not as much as I think they were expecting someone from, you know, the city the to... S- the big city. Um, to have to overcome. Um, I have a lot of extended family involved in agriculture, and both my parents grew up as dairy farmers. and But that is not my family now. So I didn't really have this kind of, uh, like common knowledge of what practices and environmental practices that farmers are, you know, implementing every day and in all these different high tech ways that I had not even imagined before. And I think some of the field trips that we went on, especially when we would see, uh, the different poultry farms and like the, nursing industry and how Mm. much they implemented things like solar panels and all these different irrigation techniques and things that I didn't really know how they worked or that you could do Mm. kind of kind of shook what I had anticipated in finding when I knew I was going to be trying to convince farmers to implement environmental practices I thought it would be like a huge uphill battle and no one would want to listen to me Hmm. And it wasn't as much as I thought. <laughs> no. I think I came in kind of a different perspective because I grew up in Wharton, Maryland on the Eastern Shore. And so right. I was just naturally like on more of the farmer end of thing. Like that was what I had always been exposed to. Very agricultural heavy area in Kent County. It's all farms, the right. fields. So I had just a natural leaning towards that group of people and sort of understood their struggles and what their where their perspectives might be coming from. So if anything, this internship has push me more to a balance. And I think the Hughes Center really should be credited for that. They really are the balance between um, what often shouldn't be, but is opposing interests between environmental groups and agriculture. So really the internship brought me more to the center in a way. Well said. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause that's absolutely true. Um, so let's talk about the future for a second, <laughs> because what if Allison, what have you been doing since the summertime? So I, just finished my second year of law school last week. And for the first half of the semester, actually, I stayed working with Sarah Everhart from ALEI as a research assistant. Um, Mostly, I just kind of helped her make the media and the PowerPoints for the Agricultural Conservation Leasing Guide Mm -hmm. uh, workshops. And I have plans. Well, I worked in the Howard County Office of Law in their environmental and land use section. So I did some, um, not leasing related, but agriculture, 
conservation easements and things like that. So mm-hmm. kind of related. And then this summer, I will be in D.C. working for the Federal Communications Commission, Whoa. which is not related. Not at all. <laughs> Wild card. Yeah. Is that your plan? Do you plan to stay outside of, like, agricultural law? Or do so, you want to, you know, are, are you just open? I am pretty open. When I went to law school, I wanted to do, uh, like, disaster law and crisis management for victims of natural disasters. And I started looking at that from the environmental side, which is what kind of drew me to looking at Mm. environmental jobs as kind of a gateway to get into understanding how these natural disasters affect people. Right. And that led me here for the summer, which I loved and was a little bit different than anything I'd been studying, but gave me a lot of practice in how to communicate with both lawyers and landowners and people who don't want to hear anything from lawyers. But or landowners. Yeah. Or landowners. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was kind of a weird track to get here, I suppose. Yeah. But in my interview for FCC, they asked me about aquaculture theft prevention because oh. it was on my resume. <laughs> and they were like very interested in how that kind of played out and what that meant. Huh. So like 20 minutes of my interview was explaining aquaculture theft possession, uh, prevention. To the FCC. <laughs> to the FCC. <laughs> of, all, of all things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so, I mean, that's, that's great, though. Uh, congratulations with that. So how long does that last? And then it you got to go back to school. Yeah, so that is 10 weeks. It starts the week after Memorial Day. Okay. And then like the first week of August I finish. And then I will go back for my last year of law school. You're going to live in D.C. while you're there? I don't know yet. <laughs> I can take, I live in Frederick now, so I can take the Mark train. Oh, okay. And it's not too bad. Yeah, that's probably the better option. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> paying an arm and leg to yeah. just live there. Jug of milk's like $6. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. And I did my undergrad in D.C., so I am... I don't feel the need to go live there. I've lived right. there before. Been there, done that. Been there, done that. <laughs> Do people say that about D.C.? Been there, done that? Eh, been there. Done I think it's both. Some people get there and never leave, and yeah. then some people live there and are like, I don't want to live there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> and Danielle, what about you? So, well, after the internship ended, I went hiking for a month and then right. heard from Suzanne Dorsey about possibly being able to come back. Mm-hmm. So I did. And I'm here and I'm, I extended my contract again. So I'm staying until June 30th now. You were supposed to leave at the end of this yeah, month. Yes, so I was supposed May. to leave next Friday. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but not anymore. Um, and then after that, I got to figure out my life and head to Berkeley for law school, find housing. and So cool. So I'm hoping to move awesome. in July so that way I can enjoy a little bit of my life before... It's awful. It's like good and bad to go to school in such a beautiful place because I imagine it's going to be so great to look at it through the library window. Like, right. That's going to be my <laughs> For years. Yeah. It's going to be beautiful outside. I know. So nice. <laughs> I can't wait to sit inside and study. Like, <laughs> double-edged sword there. A lot of temptation. So do you have any sort of idea what track you want to go law-wise? Well, I'm not sure yet. In your first year, you can't pick your classes. So it's my uh-huh. get-out-of-jail-free card. I have another year to <laughs> think about it. You know, and my experiences have been not limited, but not as wide as I'd like them to be. So I'm open to whatever really strikes my fancy when yeah. I get out there. That's and mm-hmm. so you should be. Same with Allison. I mean, Allison, you've really yeah. have a wide variety of interests, and I do. Yeah, if you had narrowed yourself down, you wouldn't have had options that you've had. So that's true. Yeah, you should never narrow yourself 
Mm-mm. You know. Eventually, I guess I have to pick a job that I don't really care about. <laughs> you, but. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Does it work that way? <laughs> yeah. My major, uh, you know, I'm a journalism major. I'm didn't expect to be a journalism major. Mm-hmm. And then I got a job at a newspaper. And I, you know, and that snowballed into me doing this job now. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and I had no idea that that was going to happen. I didn't study the environment or agriculture. I just learned about it through writing mm-hmm. because I lived on the Eastern shore and I wrote about it for that's the newspaper. So, and that's how I learned about all these issues. And, you know, with yeah. a heavy focus on, uh, policies, because I covered the state house too, mm-hmm. so it just happened to know that all those things sort of just combined and happened to work for me in this position right now. Mm-hmm. So that's how I got here. So never you know. never know. <laughs> you know that's why I think it's fantastic that you both are keeping your mind open. So mm-hmm. I've been so lucky happen. to have Allison going through law school because I get to pick her <laughs> brain and, and really bother. Uh, uh, <laughs> how long is law school? Is that a four year? Three years. That's not. It's not, it's not like being a doc. No. 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 Go to school for like seven or eight years, yeah. something yeah, like that's that. That's too much. But still, <laughs> but still, um, you know, it's a monument, monumental achievement in its own right. I'll say that when I finish, I guess I got to <laughs> <laughs> You'll be great. I have no doubts. Well, uh, I just got to say, I'm proud of both of you. You guys are, you were awesome you. interns. Uh, and, you know, obviously you're welcome to contact me about anything you ever need but you guys will know more and have more contacts than me soon <laughs> enough anyway so i'll be calling you <laughs> when i get into trouble for something mm-hmm. and i need some advice there you go so <laughs> all right thanks for coming in thanks for having thank us thank you this is great